I uh, just recently, uh, probably last month or two, I finished reading a book. Uh, it was a biography on a, on a famous musician. And there was a bunch of different things in the book that I, I found interesting just because I, I like music and kind of the background. But one of the things in, in this book is it talked about this guy being a really young guy. Uh, he actually dropped out of high school to pursue being a musician. And he talked about kind of being an outcast in his high school and what that was like. And how he, he goes out and he joins this band and travels around. And then a friend calls him and invites him in to come play for, for another band. And he does. And within the span of about 15 months, he goes from uh, playing in these tiny little clubs in an unknown band to becoming like the biggest band in the world at the time. And it literally was like a 15-month turnaround from the time he joined this band until they went from playing 200-seat clubs to sold out arenas and a number one album and all this stuff. And he was talking about what that was like and how discombobulating it was to him in his life at that time as a young man that I went through this thing that all these people, like he said, that gave me a hard time in high school. All the people that kind of picked on me for the music I liked and the stuff I was into. He said suddenly they were at our concerts and suddenly they wanted to be near to us. And he said it was so strange to go from this kind of no one knows who you are and you don't know if you'll ever be able to make a living to suddenly all the stuff that came with it. And I read that book and I was thinking about him talking about the the uh, the experience of going through that and what it was like and, and and what that felt like and all those things. And then I started thinking about it. This what came to mind is I was reading this this week. We're right in the middle of Jesus's ministry now, about a year and a half in. He's now in the middle of what we call kind of the year of popularity and a second year of ministry. And people are everywhere and people are coming to Jesus and crowding in. And they're all there for different reasons. There's people there because they think this is kind of a political movement and we're going to overthrow the government. There's people that are there just hoping to maybe get a free meal out of it. Some people are just looking on going, maybe we'll see a miracle. Maybe he'll do something amazing and we'll get to see it. And there's people everywhere he goes. And I was thinking about that, how there's so many different ideas and thoughts, expectations of who Jesus is swirling around him and everything he's doing and saying. And there's a disconnect. There's, there's some misunderstandings that are there. The way the people are thinking and the expectations they have. And so Jesus is going to say things. And he's going to preach and teach in such a way that he's correcting. And he's always kind of pushing back. And he's pulling them into what it means to follow him and what it looks like. But there's always these misunderstandings. So much so that the passage that we're looking at today, he gets a question from John the Baptist. If you've been with us, we've been working through the Gospels chronologically. Way back at the beginning of the year, we saw John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet who comes and proclaims that Jesus is now here. In fact, what we just read, Jesus calls him the greatest of prophets. He's more than a prophet. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's what Jesus says. Well, that guy, that John, John the Baptist, sends a message to Jesus and goes, Hey, are, are you the Messiah? And you go, well, that's kind of weird, right? This is the guy who Jesus is saying is the greatest prophet that's pointing to him and saying all these things. And now he's going, well, wait a second. Are you the Messiah or are you not? And there's some misunderstandings that are swirling around Jesus and his ministry. And some of the things that they misunderstand And then as Jesus starts to explain what he's saying, he offends some people. And those misunderstandings and those offenses are things that we struggle with today as well. And so I want us to look at those. I want us to first consider how they misunderstand, kind of what's behind John's question and what's going on there. And then secondly, why, as he gives his answer, it's offensive to so many. But then lastly, 
How do we not fall into those misunderstandings? How do we not be offended by Jesus and see the beauty and glory of who he is? Because you'll see right here what he's going to say to John. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And so how do we get to that? And so let's just start with the misunderstandings and what's going on. John's question to Jesus kind of highlights this misunderstanding. And so jump in with me in verse 18 and 19. Right. So Jesus has literally just raised a man from the dead. We'll go back to that in a minute. But this is spreading throughout the land. And it says the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And if you think about everything we know about John and his ministry and what he's doing, it's kind of a peculiar question for him to ask. How is this guy, this prophet, has been prepared his whole life to proclaim that Jesus is now here? How's he asking that question? How and why? What's behind it? And as I thought about that with John and what's going on, I, I think we could summarize it this way. It's, it's his expectations or maybe his unmet expectations combined with his present circumstance. And that's what happens a lot for all of us, right? At different times, we, we get overwhelmed by what's going on, and then we have unmet expectations. We think God's going to work in a certain way. And I think that's what's happening with John the Baptist. And so let's just slow down for just a second on John the Baptist, just so you're clear. If you're not at this point, John the Baptist is in jail now. He's been arrested and thrown in jail. He said some things against the king, Herod, that he did not like, and so he threw him in jail. And so John's sitting in a jail cell as he sends these messages to Jesus. And he's sitting there, and as he's in jail, and he's going, hey, are you the one to come, or are you not? And so that's his kind of circumstances, but his conception of who Jesus is, or his expectation, we talked about this at the very beginning of this series quite a bit, that the expectation of the Jewish people that were waiting on this Messiah to come is that he would come and he'd fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies, which Jesus is doing, and he's healing people, and he's doing all these wonderful things. But their expectation is he would come and he would also bring his kingdom and he would usher it in then and now that he's going to start to do these things and he's going to rally people and they're going to come around him and then he's going to say let's go and they're going to get rid of the roman empire and they're going to set up his kingdom and he's going to usher it in and there's going to be a great judgment and everything's going to be great and it's all going to happen at once and so if you think about what john's looking at as he's seeing all this unfold in front of him Right. He, he's seeing all these incredible things and he's hearing these stories. Jesus has raised people from the dead and the lame walk and the blind see and all this is happening. But yet here's John, whose entire life was to point to Jesus and he's sitting in a jail cell. And so you can kind of understand where his question comes from. Can you not? He's going, well, wait a second. I thought this was going to be this triumphant thing that's about to happen. And I'm going to be, have a front row seat to it. And excited about what God's doing and the way it's working. And then all of a sudden he goes, but I'm stuck in jail here. And so he sends his disciples, his followers. He says, go, go ask him this question for me. Are you the one to come or should we look to someone else? And so look what happens, right? In that hour, so they come and they ask that question. It says, verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And many who are blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, there's some background there that maybe doesn't jump off the page to you right away. But the way Jesus kind of constructs his answer 
John would have understood kind of the way Jesus is answering. Because what Jesus says here is he's really kind of putting what's happening, what's really happening right in front of him, but he's putting it in the language of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says these exact things about the Messiah that will come. That he's going to heal the lepers and give sight to the blind. And that whole thing there. You, You see a very similar construction the way Jesus says it in Isaiah 35 In Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61 being a messianic prophecy talking about what the Messiah will look like. And so somebody like John the Baptist, when he hears that answer of Jesus, go tell John this, and he hears that answer, he would have connected those dots. And go, yeah, it's just like the prophet Isaiah says. And here he's doing all those things. But there's something else that I think would have jumped out at John as his friends come back and tell him what Jesus said. He go, yeah, that's what it says, but there's some things missing there. If you go and you read in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah chapter 61, you start to look at all these messianic prophecies, prophecies. It includes that whole list, but it also includes things like proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those that are bound. It says things like judgment will come on those that are doing evil and all these things. And so John's, you can understand his question, right? And so imagine when his disciples come back and they go, yes, we saw him raise the dead and he answered your question. And he told us to tell you this, John, that the blind gain their sight. And you can hear John going, yes, of course. And he'd say to him, uh, the lame walk. And he'd say, yeah, that's right. And the leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And blessed are those that are not offended of me. And you can hear them get to the end. And they say that and John's sitting there in jail. And he goes, was there anything else? Did he mention anything about the captives going free? Anything about the the justice piece? That would be great too. And they go, no, that's all he said. And blessed are those that are not offended of me. And you can imagine John sitting there and going, wait a second. John's not doubting from the sense of like, oh no, because of my circumstances. He's holding fast to what scripture says. And his understanding is all this comes together. And so he has an expectation of the way God's going to do this. And now his circumstances are in such a place that he's going, I don't know how these connect. And so you can imagine John sitting there and going, wait a second, how does that work? Jesus just ends with blessed is the one who's not offended by me. See, the truth is John sees rightly the good news, but he's just not seeing the fullness of how it's going to play out. See, for the ultimate justice to come, for judgment to come and not all of us be consumed in it, Jesus is going to have to lay his life down. And that's what no one is seeing as they're following Jesus in these moments. And we're going to see this all the way throughout the Gospels. That everyone, even Jesus' very closest followers, even John the Baptist, even Peter and James and John and the ones that are closest to him that walked through his life all along the way, when he starts to say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to lay my life down, they, they don't even get it. Right? Like when you read through the Gospels and the first times he starts to say that, it, glo- it blows right over their heads. They don't have an understanding of it at all. And then he's going to start to tell them very directly, this is what has to happen. 
Right? You get to Matthew chapter 16, and it says six, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You know what happens when he says that? You know that passage? He says that. He says, this is how it's going to go down. And this is what like. and Peter kind of grabs him and pulls him aside. And he goes, that'll never be Lord. It's not happening to you. Not on my watch. You will never die. And you know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Do you understand why? They have an expectation of how this is going to go down. And Jesus understands that the only way all of this is going to come to fruition is him laying his life down for us. And so there's this misunderstanding in everything they say. Now, what they have right is the gospel is triumphant. And it does say that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and the captives are going to go free. And the, the, the unjust are going to be let out of, uh, those unjustly imprisoned are going to be let out. And all those things, it does say all those things. But the only way the fullness of that comes is Jesus must die. If Jesus comes and John the Baptist goes, hey, when, when is this going down? Are you the one to come? And Jesus goes, okay, let's go get John out of prison. And let's overthrow the government. And let's get this thing rolling. Let's set up this kingdom right here and now. What happens? We're still in our sins. We're exactly what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And Jesus knows this. And so he's going to deal with unmet expectations from every place that he goes. Multiple times they're going to say, and they sought to take and make him king, and he slipped out from their midst. He says, it's not the way this is going to work. And so you can understand where they're coming from, but what's the misunderstanding? The misunderstanding is this idea that we can just have a good king. We can just get some better information. That if we had the perfect king and the right government and everything was good and he gave us good information and he ruled justly, everything would be good. That's a lie. We don't just need better information. We don't need the hope of a better government to fix things. We need a savior. And that's what Jesus is saying and that's what he's getting at here. And that's what he's pointing them to. He's, he's bringing us to see a bigger picture of what he's after. See, the problem is their expectation is far too small. This must, misunderstanding of John the Baptist and what he's asking is he's just not seeing the fullness of what Jesus is doing. And so the misunderstanding here is this idea that we just need better information. We just need a better teacher. And I would say to you, although it looks differently today, that's the same way in which we misunderstand Jesus a lot today. So many people will say, let's not talk about Jesus's miracles and the resurrection and all. Come on, that didn't really happen. What we really need is just to follow Jesus's teaching. And that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. In fact, there's nothing good news about that. If you just take Jesus's teaching and try to apply it to your life and I'm going to follow these things and then that'll make everything better. You know what happens? is it crushes you. You can never do it. And the more you try and the more you put those things in, you go, more I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps, the worse it gets. You can't do it. You'll never bring it together. 
And so the misunderstanding that's underneath it is not seeing the fullness of what Jesus has come. We don't need better information. We don't need a regime change. We don't need a new king. We don't need all those things that we think in earthly terms, but we need a savior. And so Jesus answers the question to John and he sends them back and he says, go tell John. But then he turns and he begins to speak to the crowd and he's going to say a couple of things that are pretty offensive, which Jesus often does. He'll say things. And if you really stop and think about it, it cuts in what he's saying. And it's because he loves us and he wants us to see the truth. But he turns to the crowd and look at what he says in verse 24. When John messenger, John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Remember way back when, when we talked about John the Baptist, he was out preaching kind of on the main highway out in the wilderness. And so everybody's going out to hear his message. He says, what were you going out there to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's court. But what then did you go out to see? It says, a prophet Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Right. So Jesus is quoting Malachi chapter three, and he's saying this is the one who the prophets talked about that will come right before Jesus to prepare the way. And he is a prophet. And he says the reason that you went out to hear him speak is because he had God's word. That's why you went out. He said, you didn't go out because he was wearing weird clothes, although he kind of did that. And you didn't go out because he's kind of eccentric and he talked really loudly and he did. He did all those things. But he said, you went because it was God's word. He had the word of the Lord and you went out and you heard what he said. But then look at what happens. And then he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, the tax collectors, too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so notice what happens with the religious people that are there. They get offended by the talk of John. They get offended by Sim saying that John is a prophet and he had the word of God. And I want you to think about why that is. Go back and remember what John's message was. He came and he stands and he boldly proclaims, you're not saved by being Jewish. You're not saved by being an Israelite. You're not saved by your heritage. Right? If we'd put it in, in common day today, you're not saved because you grew up in a church. You're not saved by these things that kind of are around you in your life. And he says, you need to repent because the kingdom is here. And he's calling people to repentance. And you notice the people that go to John and they hear this, it says it's people like the tax collectors, the sinners, the outcasts. And they go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But it's the religious people that are offended by it. Why is that? Why is it when he calls them to repentance, the good people say good in quotes because Jesus says no one is good except for God alone. But the good people go to him. And they don't like what he's saying and they don't participate in his baptism. And the answer is because it's humiliating. He's calling you to say that you can't do this on your own. And it's not because you're Jewish and it's not because the church you grew up in and it's not because of your family and it's not any of those things, but you need to repent. 
You need to put your faith in what God is doing, that he is now here. The rescuer has come. And that's what he's calling them to. And I want you to think about that. It's everything that Jesus was saying, as we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? How did he start? The very first thing, he stands up. We spent two months on the Sermon on the Mount. First thing, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those that have a right understanding of who they are. That I'm a sinner that desperately needs a Savior. And when Jesus begins to speak and talk that way, you don't just need a a good king. You don't just need some laws. You don't just need some information. You need a Savior because you can't do this on your own. And people are offended by that. Maybe you're offended by that. I meet people regularly. Their conception of who God is and who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be in the church today is you be a pretty good person and you try your best and God will accept you. Except that's not what Jesus said. He said, you can't do it. That's why I'm here. Jesus comes and says, I came to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And he says it over and over and over again. And people are like, oh, I don't know about that. We'd rather you just be a good king and overthrow the government and do the things we want you to do. And he says it doesn't work that way. See, the gospel is triumphant. The captives are going to go free. He is going to set all things right. The hope that John had, the hope that his followers had, is a right uh, heart towards wanting to see all things set right. They were just missing how it comes. It's not that Jesus comes to give us better information. He comes to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I'll tell you, that's very humbling. You have to come to a place of going, I can't do this. I'm not a pretty good person who's really close to God. I am a wretched sinner that's nowhere near him. And I desperately need him to come and do for me what I can't do for myself. And so many were offended when he starts to talk about John as a prophet and what else, what did you go out to hear? But he says something you kind of interesting in the middle of that. Look at verse 28. He says, I tell you, those who are born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does he mean there? And he says, John is greater. He's this prophet and he's greater than anyone born of a woman. None is greater than John. You go, well, what is that? There's a lot of interpretations of this. I'm going to tell you what I think he's saying. I think when he starts to talk about John in that way, why John is the greatest, there were a lot of prophets. A prophet was the one that God gave his word to. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. And they would come and they'd say, thus says the Lord. And they would say exactly what God told them to say. That's what John did. He comes as a prophet and says, this is who God is. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. It doesn't mean that John's words were more true than other prophet. A prophet is a prophet because they're speaking God's words and God's words are true. So they're both true. So how's John better or he's greater? And I think the answer is because John is the only prophet that can walk onto the scene and turn and point to Jesus. There he is. Right? That's what John says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's right there. And he's the only one that could stand and point directly at Jesus and say, there he is. But then he says this right after that. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, how does that work? 
And I think part of what he's talking about here is the fact, and please don't let this be lost on you. As we sit here today and we open God's word and we read the fullness of what it is, you and I see more fully the picture of God's unfolding revelation than even John the Baptist did. John didn't understand exactly what was going to happen with Jesus going to the cross and laying his life down and exactly how all that would work. I think he had an idea and he saw bits and pieces of it, but he didn't see the fullness of it. But we do. God's allowed us to be at this time in his redemptive history that we can see the whole story. And I want you to stop and think about it for just a second with John the Baptist. Spoiler alert, if you've not read all of the Gospels, John gets his head chopped off and he never sees the crucifixion and the resurrection. Doesn't mean he's not saved. He was trusting in God's promises and what God was going to do. But he wasn't there to get to see it unfold in the way that we have. And I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. Greater is the one who's in the least in the kingdom than even John was because we see the fullness of it. And we start to understand the fullness of God's plan here. And so it's offensive because we're humbled and we desperately need a savior. But there's one other thing that I want you to see here that I think he says that we can easily be offended by if we don't put it in the fullness of God's word. Go back to what he says to John the Baptist for just a second. Go and tell John, verse 22, what you've seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. I want you to just think about that list for a second. Think about what he's telling John. And John's seen some of it himself. He's seen Jesus. He's been around. He's seen some of these things. But think about what they're saying. What Jesus is saying to John. What Jesus or or, or John's disciples were seeing and then reporting to John. Right? Verse 11. Jesus walks into this town and coming through is a funeral procession. Right? You ever been in a funeral procession? Maybe you've been a pallbearer where you're, you're physically carrying the casket. If you've ever been part, that's basically what's happening here. They're walking through the town with this young man that's passed and they're carrying his, uh, him through the town and they're going to have this funeral. And Jesus comes upon it and he says he sees this woman who's a widow and now her only son has died and it says he had compassion on her. And he stops them. So I want you to really think about that. Put yourself in their shoes for a second. Have you been to a funeral before? Have you been to a funeral where they're carrying the casket? And imagine this guy steps in and he goes, hey, just a second, stop. And he opens the casket up and he says, get up. And the person gets up. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, really, put yourself in their shoes for a second. It tells you what it's like. Verse 16, fear sees them all. That'd be pretty scary. That guy just told a dead person to get up and they got up. And that's what happens. And that's what he's saying to John. Go tell John this. The dead are raised. I'm speaking and people are coming to life. Literally and spiritually, both are happening as Jesus goes and he preaches and he teaches. But it happens and he sits up. And it's scary and I want you to think about why it's scary. It says, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. That's good news. God has come, but why is it scary? The Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Suddenly you see for a moment who God is and who you are in light of that. 
God is the one who spoke all things into existence and the one who says, get up, and the dead get up. And this is who Jesus is. And he speaks in that way. And there's this awe that overtakes them. The dead are raised. And I want you to think about John the Baptist. And he hears this, this man sitting in prison. This man that's given his entire life to proclaiming who Jesus is. That's what he was born for. That was his entire mission was to proclaim Jesus. And he's hearing the dead are raised. But then Jesus says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What is he saying? In light of who Jesus is. Right. When we come to understand who Jesus is, he's the person who says, get up and the dead get up. He's the God of the universe that's come down and willingly lays his life down for us and then is gloriously raised again. That's who we're talking about. And when that Jesus turns to you as you sit in prison and goes, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And you go, that's right, Lord, I'm yours. You do what you will with my life. I am yours. And I think that's part of what he's saying to John the Baptist. And that's not easy. It's not easy when you have an expectation and then the circumstances of your life take you in a different direction. You go, wait a second, that's not how I thought this was going to work. But Jesus goes, do you know who I am? I am the God of the universe that has come to save you, that has come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Is there anything that I cannot ask of you? That's a hard truth, is it not? That you are bought with a price, that you are not your own. That God has a unique plan for you in your life. And the chances are it might not look just like the way you thought it should look. That's not easy to hear. It's really hard to hear if you live in 2022 in America. Lay down your rights and follow me. But my rights are more important than anything else. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. If we are his and we put our trust in him, I've been saying this over and over for years. Saving faith is transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus. And you put your faith in him and who he is and what he's doing. If you're honest, there's a reckoning that has to happen. If Jesus is the God of the universe who's come down and who is raised from the dead, does it make any sense to make him your assistant? No. He's the Lord of your life. And wherever he calls you and whatever that looks like, blessed is the one who's not offended of me. And that's what he says to John as he sits in jail, awaiting to be beheaded. To never see the fullness in, in his life in this time. Yes, he's now seen the fullness and the glory of who Jesus is. But he's sitting there going, that's not the way I thought it was going to go. And so how do we get past that? That's hard. I, I know as I say it. Trust Jesus with everything in your life. And you go, yeah, but you don't know all the things that are going on in my life right now. And it's not easy. So how do we get to the place where we fall? We don't get sucked into that. How do we not be offended? How do we see the beauty of who God is? How do we not let the 
how powerful our unmet expectations and our circumstances are in our life because they are. Those are the things we end up looking at. How do we not fall into that? And the answer is exactly what Jesus is kind of pointing them all to and calling them all to as he goes. And the answer is the cross. Because when Jesus comes and he lays down his life and he enters into this life and he takes on flesh, God fully man, fully flesh, being tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And then he willingly comes to the end of his life and he lays his life down and he goes to the cross and he takes on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. He knows every single heartbreak and hardship there's ever been. And he knows it fully and completely. There is nothing that you can go through in your life that he doesn't know what it's like. We worship a God who's not far off. That goes, just trust me and here's my word and that'll do and that's it. We worship a God who's come to us and he knows everything that you go through to the fullest. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that we will ever come upon in our life that Jesus doesn't know. And he says, I've got you. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I've got you in this. And I'm not done. And I'm going to finish what I started and I'm going to bring it to fruition. And whether it's in this life or when Jesus returns, we're going to see all of it fit perfectly together. I was thinking about it as we were singing this morning. How marvelous, how wonderful. When I see his face and then suddenly everything falls into its perfect place, exactly the way he planned. And you're going to go, oh, that's what he was doing. Oh, that's so much more amazing than I could have ever imagined. We have just a moment in this life to live by faith, to trust him in those things. But it's not a blind faith. We talked about that last week because of the cross and what Jesus has done. And so let us be a people that is never offended by him. That is always holding fast to who he is. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you know us that you love us, that you've not left us in the midst of our need, but that you've come to us to do what we could never do for ourselves. I pray that when things, hard things come in our life, when there are struggles and hardships and aches and pains and all that comes, that we would see you in the midst of all of it, that you know exactly what we're going through, that you are redeeming it, that you are bringing us from one degree of glory to another, that we would never forget that truth and we would see it fully and completely. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.